a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. You're back to Inside Sources with Scott Simpson. I'm Greg Scordis. And Scott, during the last segment, we talked about oil prices, uh, how that's affected the uh, the Democrats, and we've sort of they've sort of focused on Russia and Ukraine. And with all that focus on Russia, uh, we're wondering if the U.S. is misjudging China's military capabilities. So earlier today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Natal Nahal Tusi of Politico, who wrote a really interesting article that I was able to read that talked about um, whether or not we, by overestimating uh, Russia's military might, is the U.S. Uh, underestimating China's, and uh, whether or not uh, looking at how we sort of misjudge the Russia invading Ukraine, uh, how that would affect uh, China perhaps invading Taiwan. There are some similarities. Uh, I would say that the Chinese, they already believe, they say that Taiwan is already part of China and they want to make it a a geopolitical reality uh, as part of their effort to kind of become the uh, dominant global power. I mean, this is a long-term plan that they have. They see establishing themselves uh, as the main power in the Pacific as being really important and having uh, Taiwan fully under their control is really important. Uh, I think for Putin, it, it was similar in, when it came to Ukraine. He kind of has always kind of believed that Ukraine is really not a real country, that it's part of Russia. And uh, he's also been concerned about uh, what he views as threats to Russia's power. And so, yeah, there are definitely some similarities, but I would say that uh, Russia is the weaker power when compared to China. Talk to us about the Chinese military. What do we know about it? I mean, your article makes it sound like it's it's a mighty force that they have. Uh, I think you've described it as the largest navy by way of ships in the world, and their their manpower is almost a million uh, soldiers. I mean, how do we know that? And is that do you believe that that's accurate information? I believe that our intelligence analysts believe that it's the most accurate information they can get. <laughs> Whether it, it actually is accurate, it's really hard to say. Uh, the Chinese are very secretive in many ways. There's um, a lot of people and a lot of effort uh, going on in their, their systems. And probably most importantly, it's not so much how much a military has in terms of weapons and people performance on the battlefield is it's a distinctive thing and you can have the best weapons and the most number of people soldiers in the world but if if they if they don't know how to work together if you don't have decent commanders things can just fall apart very quickly and that's why i thought this was very interesting because of the comparison to russia right the united states our intelligence suggested that Russia, having modernized its military forces and doing all these things and having some experience, actually, in recent years when it comes to fighting, we thought, oh, man, they're going to go into Ukraine. They're going to perform very well. They're going to knock the Ukrainians out within a few days uh, and they're going to capture the country. And yet when the Russians went in, they made so many mistakes. They were uncoordinated. They couldn't even get their supply lines right. Their entire 
battle premise was based on this idea that they were going to do this quickly, and so they weren't fully prepared. They didn't really seem to have an immediate plan B, and the Ukrainians fought a lot better than we thought that they would fight. So it seemed like we misjudged both the Ukrainian and the Russian militaries. So what made me wonder is, man, if we if we couldn't get these guys right, then what are we getting right or wrong about the Chinese? And the headline of my story aside, our story aside, uh, it's not just that we might be underestimating the Chinese, we might also be overestimating the Chinese the same way that we do the Russians. Uh, so it's really unclear. And, and I know that the reporting indicates that there's a lot of people in Washington who quietly, that's the fear, right? It's not that they've been asking for reviews of what um, we know about the Russian and Af- Afghan and Ukrainian militaries, not necessarily because we think we're going to be fighting those guys again anytime soon, but because the question is, how will we deal with China if we don't know how to judge these militaries properly? Talk to us, Nahal, about another thing that you said in your article, and that is that post 9-11, uh, U.S. intelligence really emphasized their their uh, counterterrorism uh, in, in investigation on the Arab world and counterterrorism, and it really sort of undercut their efforts to spy on China. And because of that, we just don't have a lot of information on China's military. Uh, another reason we don't, and I think you point this out really well in your article, is because uh, the Chinese army hasn't been in a conflict in over 40 years. Those are two things that have really put us behind the eight ball, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, when it comes to things like, you know, capacity and the number of weapons and things, we do have a lot of intelligence from satellites, signal intelligence, sometimes even open source stuff that leads us to think we do have some sense of the Chinese military strength. But, you know, decision making within the Communist Party, that's a whole other ballgame. And we're not we're not that great. We don't have that many eyes. Uh, in there, we we had better luck with Russian decision making uh, than we believe uh, than we think we have with the Chinese, um, and so these are the types of things that really really matter. And yes, after 9/11, you know the investment went toward Arabic speakers and uh, people who know the Middle East and South Asia. I mean, those were our number one priorities at that time. China was thought to be, and it was a, a much uh, less influential, much poorer world power that we were hoping that through economic integration would democratize and become a friend. You know, that didn't really happen. The Chinese Communist Party is still in charge and in some ways more aggressive than ever. So we invested in an area that, you know, you could say we really needed to invest in, but we we should have probably also invested more uh, in people who speak the Chinese languages uh, and understand Chinese decision making. Also, China managed to dismantle some of our spying networks inside the country. They uh, killed at least a dozen CIA sources. This was according to reporting in The New York Times. So it's been just very difficult for us to have people on the inside there who can tell us what is going on, especially in a very opaque system, you know, where you have a country where they have a whole government, right? But the power actually lies in the political party. And so the decision making is something that is sort of a black box for us on top of what, you know, are probably things that we don't know about the military itself, because, you know, no matter how much signals, intelligence or other types of satellites or whatever information we get, there's probably something underground somewhere that we're not aware of. Talk to me about one other thing, Nahal, and that is that I I read another article that indicated that the majority of the Taiwanese people don't seem to be 
overly concerned about a Chinese invasion, but U.S. military officials are claiming that that could happen as early as sometime within the next six years. Uh, China has has indicated that it wants to be wants to re-engage that province as part of their own, and that that would occur sometime maybe ten to twenty years. But is 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 what we're is it really eminent, or do you think that the people of Taiwan are correct that maybe there's this maybe we're overthinking this? My sense is that the Taiwanese people are slowly starting to realize the urgency of this, especially when they watch what's going on in, in Ukraine and Russia. I think the United States, through its messaging, is getting the message across increasingly to the Taiwanese that, look, you can't assume this is just never going to happen and that Beijing is going to be happy with the status quo. That being said, Beijing is also watching Russia's difficulties in Ukraine. Right. And while the Taiwanese may be, you know, may not be as prepared as the Ukrainian people, the United States certainly is sending a ton of weapons and doing everything it can to make Taiwan what we call a porcupine. Right. To deter China Uh, and China may be watching the trouble that Russia is having and the sanctions the U.S. and the West have put on Russia as a result of its invasion. And it may be thinking twice about whether it's a good idea to invade Taiwan now or not. So these are the various factors. We, at the end of the day, we don't really, we don't really know. And I think the sense among a lot of analysts and officials is, well, we need to make the assumption that the worst is going to happen, which is that China might try to invade Taiwan tomorrow. And, you know, this earlier point you made, yeah, the People's Liberation Army has not fought in a war in more than 40 years. And that's a really huge, huge unknown because no matter how many weapons or people you have, until they're actually fighting and trying to do everything from coordinating their navies and their air force, remember Taiwan's an island, um, you know, to the ground troops, uh, to supply lines, to logistics. And, and if you have never done that and you've never been tested, things could go very bad very quickly. And I think the Chinese probably are understanding that. And it's a question of whether they learn that lesson well enough or not. Let me ask you one last question. The, the United States has been reluctant to jump into the Russia-Ukrainian war, and although NATO has supplied has supplied uh, equipment, uh, we haven't supplied troops. At what level do you think the United States will engage or be involved? And, and from what you're hearing, uh, if China in in fact does invade Taiwan, President Biden has drawn a red line. He says that there's no way the U.S. is going to be sending troops to Ukraine to fight Russia. The United States has a policy of ambiguity when it comes to Taiwan and whether China uh, attacking Taiwan will lead to some form of direct or indirect U.S. involvement. We, We say that we will aid the Taiwanese, but we don't say how exactly. I think that's I think that is the the way it is, or it might be so ambiguous that we don't exactly even say how or whether we will aid them. But the point is, we leave it ambiguous. And President Biden has indicated that we will do what we must to help protect the Taiwanese. But I sincerely doubt that would mean sending U.S. troops. I just don't see President um, Biden wanting to get involved in some sort of direct fight with the Chinese. Uh, But whether that translates down the line, you know, to another president. Uh, or what what we just decide to do if and when China attacks Taiwan. Look, I think it really, really depends greatly on who's in charge in the White House and the nature of the attack. 
That's Nahal Tusi from Politico, senior foreign affairs correspondent. Coming up, the Biden administration has been supportive of global minimum tax rate. But what should we be thinking about when negotiating one? Daniel Bunn from the Tax Foundation joins us after the break. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.